Due to technical difficulties during the recording of this podcast, the audio is not up to the usual standard. We have attempted to compensate, but it's not where we would hope it would be. Apologies in advance. You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series, movie, or audio and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm John. And tonight we are looking at the 1976 Irwin Allen TV movie slash potential pilots entitled Time Travelers. Synopsis. Dr. Clinton Earnshaw is a man with a problem. It's Mardi Gras in New Orleans, 1976, and an infectious disease with a 40% mortality rate is spreading through the city, which is currently packed with tourists from around the country. The disease is named XB, and there are no known treatments. Washington sends Jeff Adams to help. He's a bit eccentric and secretive, but most importantly, he's not a doctor. Dr. Earnshaw is not impressed. However, on presidential orders, he travels via jet with Adams to the research facility of physicist and Nobel laureate Dr. Cummings. On the way, Adams isn't very informative, but he demonstrates his knowledge of an outbreak of what appears to be the same disease in 1871 Chicago. The disease, known as Woods Fever, was sweeping the city, and the only the treatment of Dr. Joshua Henderson saved lives. Not only did the disease appear to become extinct after the Great Fire, but Henderson was killed, and all of his notes and treatments were destroyed in the conflagration. Dr. Cummings is a bit more forthcoming. He has invented a time machine, and they propose to send Earnshaw and Adams back in time to 1851 Chicago so they can learn what Henderson's cure was. There's the standard, this is crazy talk, but eventually Earnshaw agrees. Equipped with period-authentic clothes and kit, plus a couple of 20th century gizmos, they head back to Henderson's home in the country four days before the Great Fire. Except... That's not where they land. They arrive in Chicago, 29 hours before the fire will destroy it. Rushing to the hospital where Henderson works, they meet him and his niece, Jane, a nurse. Jane takes an immediate shine to Earnshaw. They pass themselves off as having been sent from Washington by the Surgeon General. While Henderson is glad to get the medical help and willing to cooperate in any way he can, the fact is, he doesn't know how he's curing the patients. He's basically giving them palliative care and homemade blackberry wine. While Adams searches all the records, Earnshaw helps in the wards and secretly takes and analyzes blood samples. When one of the patients, Sharky, is cured and discharged, Earnshaw decides he needs a blood sample from a cured patient. Adams goes to get it, intercepting Sharky in a rough part of town on his way to a revival. When Sharky finds out there are needles involved, he runs, and the two men fight. Sharky is knocked out, and Adams gets the blood sample. The police catch him over Sharky's body. He runs and hides from the police for most of the day, but he does overhear the police say that Sharky is dead and he's wanted for murder. Earnshaw, exhausted, has slept all afternoon. 
when he awakes, he has Woods fever. Adams returns with a blood sample, and after analysis, it's clear he died of Woods fever. He was not cured. They have found nothing, and the fire has already broken out and is beginning to spread. Earnshaw is very sick, but they gather all of Henderson's records and the samples to take back to 1976. This is when the telegram from the Surgeon General arrives, telling Henderson that he knows nothing about Earnshaw and Adams. Caught red-handed, Adams begins reciting exactly what will happen to Henderson, and as things come to pass, Henderson asks about his own fate. Henderson will die tonight. They find Earnshaw in the lab. He's figured it out. It's the sediments from the fermenting process of the blackberry wine. Sharky was a teetotaler and would not drink the demon's drink, which is why he wasn't cured. There's not enough of the wine left at the hospital for a proper analysis. When Adams finally convinces Henderson they are from the future, he lets them go and begins evacuating the hospital. Earnshaw helps out at the hospital while Adams tracks down another discharged patient who still has a bottle of the wine. With the hospital evacuated and Adams returning with the wine, Earnshaw drops the bombshell. He's fallen in love with Jane and will stay with her. Henderson and Jane rush back into the hospital to rescue a young girl who got left behind, and as Earnshaw tries to follow, he collapses. Adams seizes the opportunity to manhandle Earnshaw back to the evacuation point, and they return to 1976 as the hospital is destroyed. Later, Earnshaw is recovering in the hospital, his research has saved the day, and the outbreak is being contained. He even receives a letter of thanks from the president. Dr. Cummings tries to recruit him to his time team. After he's fully recovered, they all go to Chicago, where Adams has located the graves of Anderson and Jane. They both died that night. Earnshaw leaves the letter on Henderson's grave. The end. All right. Erwin Allen, as people will know, uh, not only, you know, things like the Poseidon Adventure, uh, but also the, the little thing. Uh, there's a voyage to the bottom of the sea, lost in space, time tunnel, uh, land of the giants. Um, is there another one in there? No, I think that's it. I think those are the, the four biggies. Some good, some bad there. And um, of of all the stuff that he did, uh, he liked Time Tunnel the best, which was the probably the poorest of the ratings. Well, I think Land of the Giants didn't do very well either. Yeah. And this is his second go at trying to play with that, going back in history and observing great events and... and participating um, storyline. And, you know, 1976. So this is one of the later, probably the last of his quote-unquote sci-fi stuff that he ever tried to do. So I, I may have gotten a hit earlier before we started recording, but what did you think of the uh, what, of the film? Uh, it was all right. Uh, as made-for-TV movies go, it, uh, it's decent, you know? If I saw this, I'd be thinking to myself, Okay, that wasn't bad. That's a pilot. I might watch the series. Yeah, um, I'd be there every week. Yeah, if if they could uh, if they could pull off some sort of an interesting travel back in time, but don't change the future, and discover something, you know, important, uh, that might be kind of cool. Uh, because this came out in 1978, was this six. part? Of, sorry, <laughs> Was this part of some sort of uh, let's get more education on TV initiative? I doubt it. Okay. I doubt it. I, I, I genuinely think, you know, I, I don't think you've seen much of the time tunnel. Uh, no, I, they're, they're really big on 
uh, Tony and Doug end up in the middle of some big historical event. Uh, right. There's, there's two reasons for that. One there of is. which is because, you know, it's something to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, I, you know, they, they went back, they ended up on the Titanic. They were there for the War of 1812. They were they were there at Pearl Harbor. They were there the day Krakatoa went off, you know, right. the fall of Troy, all that stuff. That's because, you know, those are things and well, they know about these things and they can go back and you can give like, oh, my gosh, this is where Custer's about to get killed. Uh, and the other reason is because uh, I think it's Universal. I think it's Universal that did these. Uh, has a huge stock library of old films. And yeah, Erwin I, Allen was the master at reusing that stuff. I was going to say that in my notes, I have something about the special effects. The the use of stock footage and how they make it look like there was a fire going on, like with the cattle uh, stampede. The team who put those together should have gotten some sort of an award because that looked, you know, for the time, pretty darn good well all of the burning was from the 1938 film in old chicago with tyrone okay. power a daryl f zanuck film uh, so it was, a, it was a biggie uh, yeah. at the time the stampede was also from that oh okay all right so that was a, that much of a stretch to get the the, the uh burning look okay yeah yeah uh it was i believe uh i believe it was a I don't know if it was a black and white film or not, but they tinted it sepia when they were playing it uh, as stock footage in this to give it old time. 38, Daryl F. Zanuck film. It could easily have been color. I don't know. I, yeah. I, didn't, uh, I didn't check that. But um, yeah, uh, that was uh, apparently that took them two days of burning on the set to the, the model of Chicago that they did making that film. So it was it was a big special effects extravaganza for the day and there you go and they also the the city that they were in was from hello dolly that was the set that was built for the film hello dolly and the studio didn't tear it down they decided to rent it out for two thousand dollars a day for uh, film productions and Pretty so sweet. they went in yeah they just slipped in and, and used that for their um for the location footage or yeah. you know the on the old yeah, Chicago. I, yeah, I have a note of uh, where was this shot because the uh, the American Victorian buildings were really nicely done. Like, holy mm-hmm. cow, money in that. Well, no, they didn't. <laughs> no, but you know, that's that's what Erin Allen could do. That yeah, was one of the things that we, man did. Yeah. Yeah. He he was he was a master at cheaping through these things. <laughs> yeah. And I, that's not meant as an insult. That's meant as like, hey. You know, that's how you get your stuff on the air. and Right. It, in this case, it was resourcefulness. Because if yeah. you tell a studio that you can do all this stuff, you show them on the storyboard, and then you give them a price that's way lower than they thought, yeah, that's looking pretty good. Let's, let's green light this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how regions get stuff for it. So, a couple things about it. If you looked at the credits, you will have noticed that it was credited as a story by Rod Serling. Yeah, I saw that. And uh, obviously, uh, people have heard of Rod Serling. It's one of those, it's one of those, uh, you know, creative consultant, uh, creative or created by Harlan Ellison. It's just one of those names that if you get it on your show, you get, you get some oomph. Right. But here's exactly. the thing: maybe he didn't. 
Oh, really? <laughs> so I can't really find a whole lot of information, but the litigation started up. So I think what happened is that there, uh, indeed Rod Serling wrote, came up with a story and this other guy whose name I didn't write down did the screenplay. Jack Gillis. Yeah. So, you know, what, what, what that means, was it an original story that Rod Serling had that he turned over and said, here, you could work with this, or is it uh, an original story that he wrote that was let, you know, said, here, I'll, here's my story idea and then give it to the script. I don't know. However, a guy named Charles Willard Bird yeah. sued, claiming that this was based on his 1959 unpublished book, A Time to Live. Now, there is no information on Charles Willard Bird on the internet. There, there are some Charles Willard Birds, but it's not this guy. And the 1959 unpublished book, A Time to Live, as far as I can tell, remains an unpublished book. I can't find synopsis. I can't find any used copies. I can't find any trace that it ever became a published book. And or that this guy did anything else in the writing field. But he got a small settlement mm -hmm. and he got them to agree to allow him to claim original story credit. So it's like, yes, we agree. You can say it's an original story by you. Nonetheless, they did not change the credits. Yeah. But because it was in litigation, the studios said, you know, we're not going to, we're not doing this as a series. So, but we'll, but you know, we'll go ahead and do the movie of the week thing, but it killed the chance of this becoming oh, a TV man. series. Yeah. They just didn't, didn't want to futz around with it apparently. So, and, and okay. It's kind of a, I mean, we've seen this kind of story a, a bazillion times because we live in the year 2023, right? Yes. I don't know how many times we'd seen that story in 1976. Um, a couple, at least a few. I mean, there's some similarities here to City on the Edge of Forever. There's, uh, you know, there's some similarities to some stuff that's been done in Twilight Zone, I think. Yeah, when this came out, it would have been seven. So at that time, this would have been very new to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, the but it does feel like Rod Serling. It... it it has a sort of solid, yeah. cohesive narrative structure that feels like the way Rod Serling writes stories. And let me tell you, Joshua Henderson feels like a character right out of the Twilight Zone. You oh, know, yeah. you, you get the old cigar chomping doctor from the olden days, cut their leg off with a saw. <laughs> like that just, that just felt like him. It also felt like, you know, every, almost every character that was ever played by Admiral Nelson there. Aethart, yeah. Aethart, yeah. Except for Admiral Nelson. And, uh, you know, I think actually there's an episode where he played a pirate version of himself, and that's what he was like. So, um, <laughs> yeah, the, unfortunately, the audio wasn't the best. So it was a little difficult to understand him at times. I was thinking of the movie Blazing Saddle, where they had the, uh, uh, the, the, the drunkard townsman who was, uh, speaking the, uh, what do they call it, the Western. Yammer or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't help thinking that if he's got a cigar in his mouth the whole time, yeah. why are you having a problem? You know, it's not helping. Just not help. But anyway, yeah, it's a good character. Good character. I liked him. 
yeah, his his niece was a bit of a drip, but I mean, she was okay. But you know, she was just the girl who's going to fall in love with a time traveler, and then they're going to be star-crossed. And you know, let's face it, she's going to die because well, she's going to die anyway because it's a hundred and hundred and four years or whatever it was, or ninety ninety six years, yeah, eighteen thirty. Yep. Uh, 95 years, yeah. But I can't fault it. I don't know that there's a whole lot of detail to go into it. It was just, you know, like I said, I would watch this. If this show had been turned into a series, I absolutely would have turned in every week, hoping that they'd go to the future, knowing that they weren't going to. <laughs> you know, that you never can tell uh, how how they're going to do it. So let's see. Let's uh, uh, skip around here a little bit in my notes um we'll talk about what what this could have been perhaps later from the standpoint of it going back in time you can't change history i mean we've heard that in so many shows you can't change history but that is only interesting okay but it's more interesting when you know what the answer is why you can't change history is it because i'm telling you you can't change history because that would be very bad if you did or you can try all you want, but you cannot change history. Right. Predestination or you have some free will. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, what What happens when you go back in time with an atomic bomb and it's about to blow up? Does it just not go off? Because yeah. it didn't. Happen. Yeah, something happened not to. So your version of history is always what you remember. Except for details you never knew about. And nobody ever knew about atomic bomb shortly in New York City in, in 1901, something like that. Yeah. So I, I, I wish we'd known, I wish we'd known that. I wish we had, uh, I, I thought it was interesting that we got the little bit in there about, yeah, we, we did this once before and four yeah. of us went back and only three of us returned. And one guy came back 20 minutes later, decomposed and with a 30,000 year old arrowhead in his, in his body right <clears throat> a brand new thirty thousand year old <laughs> yeah well so i i assume that means they went back thirty thousand years yeah but i'm not 100 percent sure of that because i also don't know whether or not what they meant was he didn't make it back to the point to leave with them and then he showed up 20 minutes later or did they all leave at the right time but only three of them turned up you know, back in back in the present, and then twenty minutes later, he showed up, dead and decomposed. You know, was it something about the process? Was it something about uh, maybe maybe he'd gotten an arrow stuck in him at the instant that they transported back, and maybe having something with him? I don't know. I'd like to have known more. It was it was a bit of an interesting piece for for later on, but I, I don't think having something with them would have been caused of his demise. If that were the case, then our time travel yeah, would have been... would be dead, too, yeah. Simple. Yeah, and I... Yeah, that's a good question. That would have been interesting to examine what happened with something like that. Yeah. So, we've got uh, Jeff Adams, the character, who is the... that rare of things in 1976, an astronaut without a degree. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not convinced. <laughs> I'm not convinced. Too young for the moon and too old for Mars. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 
Well, he's definitely too old for Mars because I think he's about 80, uh, <laughs> 85, 86 years old now. And uh, we still haven't gotten there yet. So exactly. I'm thinking that it's like some sort of a uh, MacGyver type special agent that had been trained up for possible moon mission, but then uh, he decided Maybe. he wanted something else. And yeah. I'm in like his, his vortex. <laughs> yeah. It is one thing. I, I thought the his line is like, I fell in love with history because that's where the people are. Yeah. I um I don't know if I'd agree with that because, you know, the people. Yeah. But I oh, can but... definitely see somebody do it. It's like it's living history, right? As opposed to dry books. It's like, well, right. this is where the, this is the real thing. And but, yeah, exactly. Uh, to me, can... that's the most uh, thrilling esque line of the, the story. It's like, oh, OK, that actually gives some great insight into the character. Yeah, that that also. Yeah, you're right. That feels like Serling as yeah. well. Uh Clinton Earnshaw is, I have two words here written down for Clinton Earnshaw. He's good at what he does and can't say a little else because he did actually, you know, do a fairly decent job of not blowing his cover immediately. Uh, when he yeah, he was. But he's not the most imaginative of folk. No. And the whole time I'm watching this is like, I know the name Sam Groom. I've definitely seen that guy in other things. Oh, yeah. You know, can't think of what it was. Something was bugging me. Afterwards, I found out he's the dad in Otherworld. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. So this is this is his second appearance uh, on Fusion Patrol. <laughs> so, um, but, eh, all right. You know, his character was, okay, a doctor. There we go. I thought, i tell you what's also Serling. A, a disease that's 40% mortality rate at Mardi Gras. <laughs> yeah. That, feel, that feels like him. It's like, oh, look at that Mardi Gras, perfect. We need something that draws people in from all over the country, and then they get sick, and then they take it back. This is like worst case scenario. You know, that, that, definitely, that definitely felt like him. What I'm curious about, though, is, well, one... What if the disease wasn't XB when they went back? What if Woods Fever turned out wasn't XB? Now, that would be a far one. more fun story. <laughs> but how the symptom, nobody knows anything about Woods Fever except what we, little stuff we know about the symptoms and they track with XB. It's like, from what we saw, the symptoms kind of seemed like a fever and you, you kind of, disoriented, weak, pass out. Uh, that sounds Three. like maybe a couple of diseases. Yeah, a lot, actually. So uh, picking that one out and going, okay, well, let's use the time machine to go back to pick up this one disease because uh, it's extinct now, we think. But um, let's go back and bring that back to the present in case it isn't XB. All the, all the people who had it either were cured or they died in the fire. So. Yeah, they got purified by fire, so phew, there you go. Yeah, Shark Cave was right after all. Demon drink. Yes. Demon. <laughs> For listeners who know not about the Great Chicago Fire, um, October 8th through 10th, 1871, 300 people dead, nine square kilometers of the city burned to the ground, 17,000 buildings destroyed and left 100,000 people homeless. 
Yep. Definitely a big thing. Is a big fire. I mean, you talk about that whole fire of London thing, which was a big thing, but the fire, great fire of Chicago was a big thing too. It was just in Chicago and not London. And it was well, more recent. Yeah. And they did get nice historical details, right? That there was a heat wave during that time. Yep. That, I, you know, and, and I, again, that's Rod Serling. Yeah. That feels like Rod Serling. Like, I, I, I believe that guy knew his history or knew how to research his history uh, before he he did something like that. So, again, I'm not trying to not trying to diminish the work of the screenplay writer. It was a perfectly workmanlike, solid screenplay. It just does feel like Rod Serling underneath it. Yeah. And which, you know, Rod Serling was was one of the greats of television writing. There's just no, you know, there's no denying that the, the man was good. Now, I think, uh, yeah, we mentioned that the uh, the Stampede was part of the film, uh, 1938 original film. I thought in my mind that Texan down there, right, letting his cows out. I'm thinking, you bastard. What are those cows going to go do? They're going to yeah. trample people to death. Yeah, they're going to be crazed. I mean, eventually they break out of the pens and trample people to death anyway, but, but he's yeah. sending but his cattle off there. Yeah. Yeah. That's he, he has just sent them off to kill people. And, and this is a spoiler for a 1938 film. Apparently the stampede killed the bad guy in the original, in the, in, in, oh, really? in the film. Yeah. In old Chicago. So it was like a climactic thing where they get the cows going and then free from the stockyards and, I would, I would postulate that when they sat down with the idea for this, and whoever they got to write this, Sterling or Gillis or whoever, uh, they said, "Here, we threaded up this old uh, 16 millimeter print in the 1930 something movie about uh, the Great Chicago Fire, and use this as your source material, and uh, here are the scenes we like because there's a lot of action." a lot of fire it incorporate those into the script <laughs> so yeah yeah it could be <laughs> that works really well actually because if you got the stampede you have to have somebody who has the cows so why not make him a patient that works really well that is great with uh movie making it, it is it is I, I would argue that the stampede had no point in this film except and, to be uh, a set piece but you know it was exactly. uh it, it it pads out what would be a, a thirty minute uh, story into something a bit longer. So I I don't know I I I feel loss. I I don't think this was a great film. It's just it's just yeah it was just a, a solid TV movie, um, and I think they could have done well. I think we'll discuss time tunnel a little bit here about what how this differs. I know you haven't seen a lot of it, but I I think you can see a little bit of refinement in the process. But let's just let's just talk about the idea of what they would have done if this TV series had moved forward. Do they really need a doctor? Oh, boy. That is... Uh, they, we need you to go back to medieval times and find out how they were doing their leeching. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I don't know. It's very specialized. Uh, I can see him being part of a team, perhaps. There you go. You I know, I see Adams as uh, the star. Yeah. 
And then the guest star, kind of like Mission Impossible, right? You have the little team and then you have the guest star. Exactly. So for this one, we need a expert on Roman cement. And then here is Dr. Bob Rocks. And then, you know, <laughs> and they have the guest star. Then they go back in the team and then do their thing. Uh, and then, that you know, the guest star every week falls in love with somebody there and wants to stay and can't. Uh, <laughs> well, hopefully we don't get that every week, but. I could see that. Uh, I, I could see that. But I, I really, when they were trying to recruit him at the end of this, I was thinking, really? Really? An epidemiologist? Well, what other horrors are you hoping to unleash upon the world? <laughs> Let's go back and study the Black Plague. <laughs> yeah. Plague. Oh, there we go. Yeah, there we go. They, even, they did mention it in the thing. It's like, what do you want to know about it? We, we pretty much have it beat, right? I mean, I think even in 1976, it really wasn't a problem anymore. I that, you, both of you are correct. We had we had some treatments that worked. Um, we had, you know, but it wasn't wasn't likely to pop back anytime soon. So yeah, it was. I, I, that was a little weird. And then, how many times? And again, looking at this film as the template, we have a problem in the present, and the only way we're going to solve this problem is to go back to the past get some information that has been lost somehow and bring it back to the present. I'm not sure how easy that would be to write. Mm. I don't know how many of those you could come up with and just, you know, spitballing an idea. Can we get 22 episodes out of this? Uh, well, there's, uh, there's a disease that we, there was a cure that we lost. And then there was a, there was a, a piece of documentation that told how, where some something was and and that got lost we could go find that and then there's some yeah you can either have uh have living archaeology where they discover amazing things uh or perhaps there would be some sort of a bad guy who also has a time machine <laughs> jack the ripper perhaps perhaps so, sure for the sake of conversation we'll say jack the ripper at the time and so they have to go back and thwart him every week time after time yeah exactly time after time they have to do it yeah um uh, i yeah i don't know that's why i was kind of curious about the is this part of some sort of a a, uh, a possible studio led led or government led initiative to show more education on tv you know kind of the way that dr who is kind of originally pitched as you know, they got to go to historical things. The kids will learn stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And then we got Dalek Everman. I, I don't have any, if there's not a whole lot of documentation on this, I, I did try. I really don't believe so. And the reason, the simple reason I don't believe so is because they definitely did not have that mandate in the 1960s when he made Time Tunnel. And it has been clearly repeated from multiple sources. Time Tunnel was Irwin Allen's favorite. Right. So he liked that idea. And and I think not only did he like that idea, he knew how to use stock footage. <laughs> and he knew that was, you know, that was a sustainable business model for him if he could just get the formula right. So for listeners who don't know, uh, Time Tunnel, um, which, you know, is not on our list of shows to do. Uh, we have, We have a list and Time Tunnel is not there. And the reason Time Tunnel is not there uh, is 
the same reason that, you know, this is a little bit of a departure. Because this is really, it's a science fiction story because it's got time travel in it. But it's really just sort of a, a historical drama with a little bit of a trapping. And most episodes of the time tunnel are just, oh my gosh, we're on the Titanic. How can we get off the Titanic <laughs> yeah. before we die from being on the Titanic? Um, oh, this is Krakatoa? Wait, what's the day? Gosh, I'm glad I'm so good with dates. Today is the day that Krakatoa goes kaboom. Oh, how do we That's get off the island <laughs> with our lives intact? And so it, it was just not really very science fiction-y. You know, it, it, it is just sort of a, a adventure show in time. And I hate to say that, but, you know, just like if you look at Doctor Who and you look at the historicals versus the space shows. Yeah. versions you know we know which one won out because we know which one people like to watch and exactly and they are definitely uh more difficult to do them in in the context of well i mean so they went back and they met the romans and the romans did these romany things that we knew romans did and then uh, yeah so that's why time tells on other but you know the the premise of the show is that Two scientists working on America's most expensive top secret project, the Time Tunnel. One of them, they were going to close it down because they'd spent billions and billions and billions <laughs> of dollars on this thing, which uh, surprisingly looked just like the Great Machine from Forbidden Planet. Yeah, um, they, they under, can't. underneath because uh, maybe there was some stock footage of that floating around somewhere. Uh, but they also had built a time tunnel uh, set of their own which looked pretty cool, I have to say. And um, they were going to close it down because they just hadn't managed to get it working. And so young, hot-headed scientist, I think it's Tony. Yeah, Tony Newman, decides to uh, test it out the night before they're going to close it down. He's got this new thing, and he thinks it works. And he's going to die because it didn't quite work, right? So the head of the project, Doug, follows him in to rescue him, and the two of them get trapped. And... First thing they do is they land on the Titanic. Literally, that's the first thing they do. They land on the Titanic. You know, you clump down on the thing. You look up. There's the life preserver. Titanic. And you go, oh, God. What? Oh, Titanic. That one I know. Look, I don't even need to know which crossing this is because this is the bad one. <laughs> and um, so then you do have the people back in the base doing everything they can to try to get a perfect time lock on them to try to snatch them and pull them out. But every time they grab them and they pull them out, they can't reel them in and they get flung somewhere else. Just like a certain malfunctioning time machine from the planet Gallifrey. You don't know where you're going to end up next. And that's just what happens. It's just, it's just that ridiculous coincidence that wherever they land is exactly the worst place to be. Right. Um, they were able to go in the future, though, sometimes. They did occasionally go into the future. Um, I think one of the very early, early episodes, they land up in the storage compartment of a rocket ship on the pad in the final countdown. Oh, yeah. I saw that on that uh, little uh, kind of behind the scenes thing on Erwin Allen and the time tunnel. You and, thing. you know, I love the I, I love the line where he's in that where he says, you know, if this is one of those early Mercury jobs, we got a problem. <laughs> This is going to blow. <laughs> it's like, if this were a Mercury, you wouldn't have that much room, dude. 
<laughs> the astronauts would know you're there. Yeah, they would. <laughs> yeah, they would. So, but still, you know, the audience wouldn't know that. So it's good. But, you know, that has no control. And there is that sort of, if you could control where you were going, Simon and I have discussed this on Doctor Who before. Like, I do, in fact, like the fact that the doctor cannot control or could not in the old days control where the TARDIS goes. Because if he can control where the TARDIS goes, he can solve so many problems with the time machine that, you know, he he couldn't do in the early days. Because if he got in the TARDIS and he hit the switch, he was no, no clue where they're going to be next. Exactly. Right. That's and instead of I'm just going to set the TARDIS to go a uh, thousand miles to the left, uh, 15 seconds into the past. And, uh, you know, four feet off the ground. Oh, whoa, missed it by a foot. But there you go. As opposed to, oh, we're in another, oops, we'll have to bleep that. Uh, (laughs) I don't think the doctor's ever said that, but now we're we're in another galaxy 6,000 years in the past. Time Tunnel had that problem, kind of a lack of control, but that gave them the plausibility of, why don't you come back and do something useful and stop dropping them on Krakatoa the day it's going to blow up. Because when they built people, they put too much uh, plot medium in it. Well, yeah. And, you know, they never did anything cool like, well, we've escaped uh, we've escaped Krakatoa. Where are we now? Oh, Tambora. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Out of the frying pan, into the fire. Two parker. Oh, no. Yeah. Twin. We call this episode Twin Peaks. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so... So this show, they could, they could, switching back to uh, uh, time travelers, this show, they could, they could control where they were going, but then you have to work on the, the idea that says, what kinds of things would they do? I, I, I'm not trying to dismiss the idea that we could learn an awful lot if we could go back in time. If we could go back in time and like photograph the contents of the Library of Alexandria or something. You know, there, there's a, there are lots and lots of things that you could do in the past for learning that, you know, has oh, been yeah. lost or, or how did civilization start or, you know, any of so many, what were the dinosaurs like? Any of so many questions that you could go back and answer, how would you prioritize that? <laughs> yeah, it would be, it would be a monumental task of, Tried to figure out what to do first when you got this. Well, he literally a catalog of target has graded. Yeah. His, uh, yeah. Well, what do you do first? Who knows? Yeah, and that one would be that one would be. I think would either make the show too wild and unwieldy, or it would just be it would just get ridiculous, like it did with Time Tunnel. It's like I know. Let's go see Krakatoa. It's like, no, no, stop picking these events that we have stock footage for. Right. I, they would have to come up with a, like a series Bible where they kind of want, you know, want to have the series go toward, you know, maybe it's going to have the overarching idea with a, a bad guy with a time machine or maybe uh, they would work on character development, which would be shocking back then. <laughs> yeah, you know. And we would definitely, definitely have to resolve the can you not change history or should you not change history? Right. That would all become the joke of the episode of uh, 
you know, where did you leave your X, Y, Z thing? It's like, oh, I don't know. It was, oh yeah, it was destroyed in the great fire or it sank with the ship or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and you know, there's, there's, um, there's an episode of the Twilight Zone, speaking of Rod Serling, I don't know if he wrote this one, where uh, a bunch of guys are at a, a gentleman's club or whatever and discussing, well, I can't remember what the, what the darn thing was. But somehow one of them went back in time to the day Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. I think they were having a debate as to whether or not they could, he could change history. And he tries. The guy tries so hard. And he gets somebody else involved in helping him. And mm-hmm. they fail. They fail. Right. But the other guy who was helping them was, you know, telling people, we've got to save the president. He's going to be assassinated. And when he returns a failure to the future, the I think it was the guy who worked the club as the butler is now one of the members because his ancestor was the guy who was running around telling people that Lincoln was going to get killed and he became famous and got rich. Uh, so time did change, but they couldn't change the big things. Right, right. Another one of those, uh, you know, paradigm somewhere in the middle time is a river and it will work its way back to where it needs to be but you can disrupt it a little bit here and there right i don't know which would be the best answer i think in i think in time tunnel it was proved repeatedly that nothing they could do could make the slightest change yeah you know what they probably would stick with that just because well that would work in the past why not, you know, keep using it? But of course, it only works for one season. So, yeah, yeah, you have to have some, and you know, they'd have to work on the peril aspect of it. Well, we didn't get back to the place. It's like think about how awful it would be if you have to get back to the exact same place to get back, and you landed on the Titanic. Exactly. Oh, you're a hose. Sorry. Yush. It's like, uh, could we take the ship back, please? Uh, no. Hey, you a lifeboat? Drop it right then. Yeah. They would have to write some sort of, you know, it's the landmark you're closest to, the, you know, this section of stairwell on the, the, the ship deck or something like that. Yeah. You know, speaking, so speaking of getting back to the present, they yeah. have to be in the exact same spot. All right. Fine. You have to be in the exact same spot. Did they have to be at the exact same spot at the exact time they were trying to pick them up? Or did they just have to get back to that spot? And they would be picked up. Well, because it seemed to happen as they were doing other things, it wasn't like they showed up to the locations. Okay, now we just have to wait. And it's like they were still moving, and boom, they transported. So I think it's wherever they, when they crossed that, that that fear of of influence, then they'll they'll shift. Good thing they didn't have to take the train. Yeah, yeah, they wouldn't have. Uh, we can't go up there. Of, of getting out of the AL, different spaces. The other thing that I thought was a little weird is that no one batted an eye when two guys materialized on the stairs with them. <laughs> right? I mean, uh, it was packed. Yeah, they were probably uh, looking at their phones. Stricken with pink. I suppose. <laughs> that, was a, that was a little bit of an unconvincing, boom, we're here. And then nobody goes... Excuse me, sir. How did you appear in the footsteps right in front of me? I, it just yeah, they probably just figured the part of the crowd they stepped in. 
<laughs> what did you think of the um, the time machine set itself? Um, I I think they were using uh, more set pieces from other Irwin Allen television shows. And I, I did actually like the idea that uh, as soon as they went into the the time machine uh, platform, I guess you could say, yeah. you open it and you start down a, a set of stairs, and looking out, it's just a uh, blue sky with clouds, but you're above the clouds. Now I thought, yeah. okay, that works. So you're it's an interesting, time. interesting idea. Yeah, I like it's that. Like part. A, I'd have never thought of it. <laughs> just would. I would never have thought of that as being the the how do we represent the time machine, right? The time tunnel kind of makes sense. It's a big long thing. You go in it and it shoots you out the other end. <laughs> right, right. This is just sort of like yeah, it's sort of like the sky. Well, they uh, definitely more in line with a pilot for television series. Yeah, that at least would have been a relatively cheap set to maintain. Oh yeah, very. Yep. I, you know, what do you have to do with it? <laughs> I mean. You're just passing through it, and then... Right, exactly. Exactly. You're going to the phone booth, and then boom, you're gone. You're someplace else. My guess is that many episodes, you'd never even see them go in it. Exactly. They just realize them for it. You'd just be at the desk with uh, uh, Dr. Zayas there, and you'd be saying, yeah, all right, well, we've got the team. Let's uh, let's head back to um, Krakatoa. <laughs> exactly. That's where I'd go. That's where I'd go. I... As long as I could get out in time, that's I would I yeah, Krakatoa. That would be interesting. Um, but uh in the next shot, there they are. It's like, all right, well, everybody remember where we parked. I don't know that I have anything else about this film or or even any of the other stuff we've discussed that's not about this film. No, that's about it. Oh, I will say this one thing. Uh I don't know how this works because it's about that whole unpublished nineteen fifty nine book, A Time to Live. Right. If it's unpublished, is it a book? You need Let's to start with that. Yeah. Uh, whoever made the entry in Wikipedia, I don't know. <laughs> how, how? I don't know if you know this, but The Night Stalker mm-hmm. is based on the unpublished book, The Night Stalker by Jeff Rice. So it was, it was made based on a book that had not been published. So it seems like in the 1970s, apparently, filmmakers could get hold of unpublished books. Maybe uh, that was a thing that they did. It's like, I, I've written this book, and you send it to a bunch of publishers, and they don't like to say, well, I'll send it to a couple film studios and see if anybody's interested in the rights kind of yeah, thing. That that might have been it. It might have been one of those things. Well, we really don't see our agency publishing this as a book. However, we think it should shop around at some studios. Yeah, they might option it for a script. Yeah. And we'll get some traction there. But yeah, I, I could see it. The, the difference is Night Stalker was ultimately published after it became a, you know, mega super hit TV movie. Right, exactly. Um, but I right. think quite a few years afterwards, not just like, oh, we better cash in on the book. I mean, I think it was quite a while afterwards, like maybe the oh, 80s or 90s. We've got the thin bun. All right. Well, uh, I I really want to read A Time to Live. Good, Good luck finding a copy of it. Yeah, I mean, probably was burned in the Chicago fire or something. Probably a studious vault somewhere. Ooh, that's my, that's my time travel movie. I want to go back in time to meet Charles Willard Bird and get a copy of his book before it's unpublished. 
that's why no copies exist. Exists. That's right. We'll make sure that it never gets published. So to keep the timelines clean. <laughs> John, thank you for joining me. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Listeners, I hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider supporting us at buymeacoffee.com slash fusionpatrol or patreon.com slash fusionpatrol. For our monthly Patreon subscribers, we're currently running a special series on Babylon 5. Come join the conversation in the comments section of this episode at fusionpatrol.com. You'll also find there over a decade of past episodes. You can find some of our other works at soundcloud.com slash fusionpatrol. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we look at Season 1, Episode 6 of Space Above and Beyond. We look at the episode Eyes, and we discuss what passes for political intrigue on Space Above and Beyond. Come join the conversation on Fusion Patrol.